According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in Proverbs chapter 13. Proverbs 13. Last week, we were looking at verses 2 through 4. And uh, we didn't quite get through that. And then we'll move on into verses 5 and 6. In uh, verses 2, 3, and 4, we're talking about the mouth. A lot of things here with the mouth and soul, mouth and lips, soul and soul. We've got poetry that is, that is linked together by virtue of uh, key words or catch words. Uh, these, these expressions that are used again and again and again. And nephesh is used quite a bit. The soul uh, is used in, uh, in these verses. Not always translated as soul, sometimes it's translated as life. Like in verse 3, the one who guards his mouth preserves his soul. That's his nephesh. And um, we have that uh, repeatedly here. So anyway, where we left off is where we'll pick up. Lord, uh, and, uh, of course, with a word of prayer to get started, we want to set aside our distractions. We want to uh, make sure that we're ready to do this. All right, let's pray. Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing that we have to assemble together. We thank you for the flexibility of your plan, Father, for your grace in our lives day by day, moment by moment. We're missing Christopher this morning, but we're thankful for your grace there. And just thanking you, Father, for, uh, for all that you do. And uh, rejoicing, Father, that uh, your word is eternal, your word is true, your word uh, never uh, gets confused when the normal procedures aren't happening. So thank you for being faithful. Father, we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All righty. Christopher got a job, by the way, so you can pray for that. And uh, we're adjusting to a new normal now that uh, we don't... He's a handy guy to have around and didn't realize how much I'm relying upon him. All right. Proverbs chapter 13. A wise son, a father's discipline, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. We discussed that under uh, point two. Let me just run through some of these and won't dwell on them. The, uh, under point one, we saw that the beginning of chapter 13 echoes chapter 10. Both chapters begin with a wise son. Both chapters demonstrate that personal and public wisdom is the legacy of parental wisdom instilled from childhood. See, that's the best way to obtain it. And I recognize that not everyone grows up under parental wisdom. Not everyone grows up in a Christian home under biblical teaching. And so in some cases you get saved later in life and then you, uh, you go through the remedial classes and you get caught up uh, as an adult. You get caught up on what uh, personal and public wisdom is all about. And uh, some sub-points there. Point two, son wise, disciplined father. The four words from, uh, from verse one. And we went through the subpoints on that. Point three, the scoffer is a defiant fool who will not listen to an earthly father or God the Father. And, and uh, that's uh, 13.1 uh, part B, a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. And we've seen this scoffer already several times in chapter one, chapter three, and chapter nine. We're going to see the scoffer again and again and again. It shows up a total of 10 times from uh, in that section from chapter 10 to chapter 24. All right, and so this gets us to where we are in uh, dealing with uh, point four then. Mouth and soul, that's uh, verse two. And uh, mouth and lips, 
soul and soul. So we got verse 2, verse 3, verse 4. We got the catchwords that establish for us the uh, structure to the poetic passage. And we can read through these as well, verses 2, 3, and 4. From the fruit of a man's mouth he enjoys good, but the desire of the treacherous is violence. And uh, the one who guards his mouth preserves his life. Uh, again, that's nephesh, that's soul. And the one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Verse 4, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. And so we have these terms that are employed, the mouth, the lips, the soul, the uh, expressions that Jesus will make use of as well, by the way, when he highlights the issue that it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles a man, it's what comes out of your mouth, because it's what comes out of your mouth that's the reflection of the condition of your heart. And we can learn very quickly the the status of your soul or the status of your heart based upon the kind of either light or darkness that's coming uh, coming from your mouth. Now under this, I think uh, we talked about the first half of this last week, um, the mouth is is uh, kind of a two-way street, right? There's stuff that you put into it when you're eating and there's stuff that comes out of it when you're speaking. And that's uh, uh, both directions are pictured in the in these verses. In fact, it kind of goes back and forth and uses them interchangeably. Um, and so, uh, trying to synthesize three verses into two subpoints by uh, showing as an instrument for speaking on the one hand and as an instrument for eating on the other hand. And that's all I'm really doing here, showing the the output and the intake that uh, that we all do with uh, with our mouth. As an instrument for speaking, the mouth is a portal for edification, say, or, or not. But it's designed, and it should be, if you're in the will of God and pursuing His plan, then the mouth is a portal for edification. That's the output. That's where we all are privileged. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to have a communication gift. Uh, any believer, regardless of their gift, can come alongside another believer, and the output of his lips can be a blessing. And it's supposed to be. Okay? Remember, we're, we're in Proverbs here. We're talking from the standpoint of Old Testament doctrine. We're not talking about believers with a spiritual gift or anything of the sort. We're talking about any born-again believer uh, that with eternal life, with a perspective on the Word of God, that can come alongside any other believer and uh, be able to fellowship in the things of the Lord, be able to offer a, an encouragement, to offer a, a, a promise, or even just a snippet, a, a truth from Scripture. And uh, something in those lines. And, and I, I think it's kind of neat that more and more folks, Bill Kelly and some other folks, have started to, um, have started to uh, make use of something I threatened to a while back. Um, and, and I'm not doing as much of it anymore. But instead of saying, how are you? Walk up to somebody and ask them, can you testify to the faithfulness of God this morning? Right? And what a, what a marvelous question. Can you? Can you testify to the faithfulness of God this morning? And I trust we all can. And, and if we can't, that's a problem. We better think about it. Uh, yes, you know, I got out of bed this morning. Some people can't do that. Uh, you know, just think about uh, God's faithfulness day by day, moment by moment. And can you testify to the faithfulness of God this morning? And, and um, you know, please do. <laughs> you know, share an encouragement with me. Let's, let's uh, fellowship in, in the things of God. And uh, there's blessings there. All right. And isn't that much more effective than just how are you? You know, the, the mindless, stupid, how you doing kind of question. All right. So as an instrument for speaking in the mouth is a portal for edification. Ephesians 4.29, James 3, the whole principle there that uh, let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth. If it proceeds out of your mouth, you let it. And you were told not to. Okay? We've got to get a handle on that. 
And uh, by virtue of renewing our mind, by virtue of feeding our soul with the nourishment of, of God's truth, then uh, there should be less and less of that as we grow. So don't let those unwholesome words proceed out of your mouth. So that's the out, output. Uh, but then there's also an intake. The mouth uh, does take things in and, uh, and eating is good. I like eating. Eating is biblical. All right. But eating is not only, it's not just simply a biological function for a carbon-based life form to, uh, to, to survive. Okay? Um, we are delighted to partake and to partake with thankfulness. Uh, eating occasions for us, for born-again believers, eating occasions are testimonies to the faithfulness of God. So we start with prayer. We, we sanctify our meal with prayer. The idea of, uh, of grace, table grace, or, or that is not just a, a, a little kitty thing. All of us should be doing it. And, and you learn it as a child, but all of us should do this. Every meal, everything that we partake, everything that we consume, food and beverages, and we take it with thankfulness that God in His grace has so provided. And, um, and that's, that's, again, that's our blessing. As an instrument for eating, the mouth is a portal for enjoyment. Enjoyment, see, or not depending on whether we're uh, operating on biblical norms and standards or we're operating in carnality, okay? Because this too can get abused. This too can get abused. But eating should be an enjoyment activity. As I say, not just simply surviving, not just simply, um, you know, uh, what an evolutionist you know, worldview would, would say. Uh, but it is a, a venue to identify that God has provided. Give us this day our daily bread. Every meal He provides, we partake with thankfulness and we recognize that yes, it's going to keep us alive. Yes, it's going to nourish us, but we are also supposed to enjoy it. So the, uh, the variety and the flavor and, the, and, the, and just whatever it is, thank Him for what it is. Thank Him for the, uh, the varieties that He supplies and the blessings, the abundance that He supplies, especially as Americans. It staggers, it, it boggles my mind. Okay, the just the sheer volume of what's available in uh, in in driving distance from from my house. You know, I mean, just think about it. Everything under the sun is is available here in town for the most part. Okay, although I was exposed to something new in New Orleans, and now I've got a now I've got to uh, had a muffaletta for the first time in my life. I never even heard of a muffaletta before. So. Um, that was in New Orleans, and now I've got to find out if such a thing exists in Austin or not, and, and if it's the same or comparable, because uh, I don't want to drive all the way back to New Orleans. But, but see here, what I'm talking about, though, is you know you can go to the Philippines and, and you're going to get Filipino cuisine. You, you can go to Germany, you can go to Ukraine, you can go to... And any country you go to is going to be very, very limited. Basically, they'll have their native cuisine, and they'll have, occasionally, they'll have some uh, cuisine from other cultures, but nothing like what we have here. Everything under the sun is available. And that, uh, to me, is, is a thing of enjoyment. So, let's talk about enjoyment. Let's talk about what happens as we eat, and how we're satisfied, and why God designed us with taste buds, and how we can savor the... Uh, the savor, the, the flavor, right? We can, we can savor what He supplies and, and rejoice in it, see? Or we can abuse it, gluttony and, and never being satisfied. And that's, the, that's the corollary. And we'll see this in, in most of these verses here. So uh, Deuteronomy 31, Psalm 23. Did we look at these already? They seem familiar. Yeah, we talked about Ecclesiastes 10, 19. That's right. So Psalm 23, there's principles of satisfaction that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
You know, so are we content with what he provides? And if I'm not content, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna complain about food, I'm gonna complain about about whatever, then that I'm violating the design for why he's feeding me. Okay? Does that make sense? The 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 rule we had growing up, <laughs> my dad uh, was very, very authoritative on that, was once we said the prayer, once we said thanks uh, to the Lord, there was no grumbling a lot after that. He would come down hard. We'd get spanked, we'd get grounded. He would, because he said two things. He said, first of all, you're, you're dishonoring Jesus Christ because God's the one that provided, and we gave him thanks for the meal. And then secondly, you're also insulting your mother. Your mother worked hard on this meal, and she cooked it, and she's a great cook, and I love her. And, and Dad made very clear. He said, I've been married to her before you came along. <laughs> you know? So uh, anyway, we learned not to insult Mom in front of Dad. That was a principle. Um, anyway, so we want to have satisfaction. And, and without satisfaction, I think we have uh, what happens here. So from the fruit of a man's mouth, he enjoys good. There's an enjoyment that's introduced there in, in 13.2. But then there's a desire. And notice on the wicked side of things, desire never finds enjoyment. You ever thought about that? Even when they get what they want, is their soul satisfied? Okay. Where's the real enjoyment? Carnal enjoyment is not even enjoyment. I don't think. Not as Scripture defines it anyway. The desire of the treacherous is violence. Um, and I think this too, uh, principle in verse 4. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. And fat in, in, in context is a good thing, okay? <laughs> fat is a great thing in, in, in the poetry of, of Hebrew and so forth, okay? Um, but think about it. It's not just the body that enjoys the flavor, the, the mouth that enjoys the taste or the stomach as it goes down, the whole, the whole process but the soul itself with the capacity to appreciate God and His faithful provision. That's the, uh, that's the delight. So uh, from Psalm 23 we've got contentment. From Psalm 104 we've got contentment. Ecclesiastes 9 that, or 10, that's human viewpoint. Acts 14, 17 and uh, the first Timothy passages. And this, that's where we ran out of time. I don't mind rereading those. They're useful. 1 Timothy 4, verses 3 through 5. Again, uh, there is no food. Now this doesn't mean you have to like every food. There are still tastes that you will not enjoy. <laughs> okay, Because we're all different and there's some flavors that we like and some flavors we don't like. You know, My wife and I are in a mixed marriage because she's chocolate and I'm vanilla. So, you know, what do you have? Which is kind of fun actually. That means we don't fight. We don't fight over her. She can have all the chocolate in the world and I don't you know, steal from her. And then I can have all the vanilla or caramel or, or things like that, butterscotch, uh, anything with non-chocolate. And, and, and uh, she doesn't try to steal from me. So it works out well. But First uh, Timothy 4, verses 3 through 5, uh, these foods, you know, if you've if, if you got some kind of a church or religion or, or some kind of thing whereby they've invented a a thing that says you could, should abstain from these foods, okay? So don't eat beef or don't eat, uh, you know, you got to have fish on Friday or don't eat this or don't eat that. Well, well, says who? Says the Bible? The Bible doesn't say that. Well, why are you making this up? Uh, abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. And so food is designed as a communal thing. Food Meals are designed to be shared. 
They're designed to not eat by yourself, but to eat with other people that have the capacity to glorify Jesus Christ. So food is designed to be shared and gratefully shared. We're all taking part in the Thanksgiving and we're all taking part in the eating by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is to be received with gratitude. Okay? And that includes, you know, the flavors you're not exactly fond of. Um, You know, you can change your mind. You can develop a taste for something you didn't like when you were younger or not. Depends on how stubborn you are. (laughs) Okay? But you know what? Even if it's not your first choice or second choice or 15th choice, even if you find yourself in a social place where you're eating something you wouldn't eat otherwise, you can still give God the Father all the praise and glory and learn to appreciate the taste and thank your host for providing it because it's gratefully shared in by those who know the truth. See? And there you go if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the Word of God in prayer. We sanctify our meals. Okay? Sanctifying our meals. And that's, uh, that's the pattern. So that's why we do this. And the little kids learn this. And a child in the home learns this. And he may not know the doctrine. He probably doesn't know the doctrine. But as a, as a little toddler, he's watching it happen. And as he grows up, he's listening to it happen. And then at some point, he's even invited to say the prayer. And he gets a chance to take a turn and say the prayer. And, uh, and, and you start instilling those habits and those patterns of the youngest of ages. And then they, that carries with them into their adult capacity. So chapter 6, follow up to this. Instruct those who are rich in this present world. This is uh, 1 Timothy six seventeen. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things. And here's the purpose clause. Why does He give us all these things? To enjoy. To enjoy. Our life should be a life of enjoyment as we're walking in fellowship with the Father and with the Son, as we enjoy His faithfulness to provide for our needs, giving us this day our daily bread. And Father, thank you. Today I get this, and yesterday I had that, and tomorrow I get this, and and uh, and everything He provides, it's it's more than sufficient. It's more than abundant. Richly supplies us with all things to enjoy, and, and it goes on. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So enjoyment and sharing they go together, storing up for themselves a treasure of good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Life is not food and drink. Life is not what we eat. The kingdom of heaven is not food and drink. Okay? These are simply the temporal life blessings that God is supplying that we should be able to enjoy with a spiritual life um, uh, priority, way of looking at things, if that makes sense. All right, so that's point B. Now there's a warning that comes with this. When the appetite becomes an idol, there will never be satisfaction. When the appetite becomes an idol, there will never be satisfaction. Okay, is, is food for the stomach or a stomach for food? How does that work? What's the purpose? What is designed for what? And, and if we are violating God's design, if we are living in defiance of God's purpose, then we're, we're out there. We're serving the adversary. We're, we're following in His footsteps. 
See, that's the same arrogance that Satan promoted when Satan just decided that he was going to chart his own course and he was going to blaze his own trail and do his own thing, that he didn't have to fulfill the functions and the designs that the Father had designed for him. And so any perversion of food, we have gluttony. Of, of alcohol, we have uh, drunkenness, right? Of sex, we have all kinds of sex addictions and pornography addictions and all kinds of other abuses and things, promiscuity and things beyond the bounds of marriage that, that violate the design that God has put in place. And so everything He's designed for our temporal life enjoyment. Yes, we should enjoy a good meal. Yes, we can enjoy a glass of, of wine. I don't have to drink the entire thing. Okay, that, that, that'll get me drunk in a hurry. I don't have to, you know, the, the meal in, in moderation. And, and you understand what I'm saying? Same thing with sex, same thing with everything He's designed for our enjoyment. Vacations are great, but not 50 weeks a year. Okay, that's this, you know, there's a point you don't, you don't cross that line. Um, you know, other things. If God's provided it for your enjoyment, then enjoy it. But enjoy it as designed. And don't make an idol out of it. Don't make an idol out of it. The moment you do that, then you've crossed into idolatry and then you come under judgment. And so uh, we see it, the no satisfaction here in verse 4. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing. And then you just, you're, you're craving and craving and craving and you can never obtain. Pastor Thiem years and years ago developed that frantic inveterate search for happiness. And uh, I'm not sure even what inveterate means. It just, it's a nice I word that goes with FSH so you can create an a, a acronym for fish, right? But the frantic inveterate search for happiness. And, and it's everywhere. It's this whole culture, and they're, they're searching for happiness today, tomorrow, the next day. They've been searching for it for years. They're never finding it, whatever they try. And, uh, well, Proverbs 13, 4 says they won't. They're going to get nothing. In Proverbs 27 and verse 20. We see this as well. You talk about what can't be satisfied. And it's remarkable to me, the, the realm of Sheol and Abaddon, are never satisfied. And so those are the realms, and yet there's a mindset that goes with that that's not our mindset. That's not the mindset of the redeemed. Okay, Our, our souls are not abandoned to, to Sheol. But for the unregenerate, for those that are perishing, the mindset of Sheol and Abaddon is, is, is what's being reflected here. That is the, uh, the inhabitants thereof, the denizens thereof. Uh, nor are the eyes of man ever satisfied. And uh, that's what you're dealing with. Anyway, there's more on that. We've got to deal with shale and abandon and some angelic conflict studies, but that's what that's about. All right, chapter 30, verses 15 and 16. Proverbs 30, 15 and 16. The, um, the leech has two daughters. Give, give. <laughs> and they've both got the same name. Okay, uh, there are three things that will not satisfy. Four that will not say enough. Okay, remember this is the x x plus one formula of Hebrews poetry. So if it's six and seven or three and four or whatever it is, if it's a number and a number plus one, then in Hebrew poetry, what we're really spotlighting is that final number. That's the that's the big deal of this of this text. So uh, three things that will not be satisfied. Four that will not say enough. Sheol and the barren womb and the barren womb. Earth that is never satisfied with water. Fire that never says enough. Okay, so there they are. 
and I forget how I outlined those. Three and then four. So Sheol, the barren womb, earth, fire is the order on that. That never says enough. You don't include 17 in that. 17 moves on to something else. Anyway, point being satisfaction. Okay, And what, what can satisfy? What is designed to satisfy? What does it even mean to be satisfied anyway? And, uh, and, and why is this terminology used in Scripture related to God Himself first and foremost, and then you and I? And we find that once we learn how God is satisfied, then we, we unlock the secret for <laughs> what, what we should expect. We should have the same attitude God does. Okay? We find our contentment in Him. We find our satisfaction in Him. We find that satisfaction means being well-pleased. And uh, that's, that's all about God, well-pleasing in His sight. And uh, some of those things are coming up in Philippians too, so we'll have some fun with that. Finally then, uh, Philippians 3.19. New Testament passage that addresses this as well. Philippians 3.19. And you know this one already. The idolatry of the belly. Philippians 3.17 says, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. So Christianity is all about the peer pressure, okay? Avoiding the wrong examples and embracing the right examples. And the peers that the Father has designed is the body of Christ, is the one another imperatives of the body of Christ in the local church. That we have spiritual leaders in the sense of the Apostle Paul, but we also have peers. We have one another, fellow, uh, fellow brothers in the lampstand. And so observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Now let me tell you something. Don't fall for the, the wrong approach that says, okay, the good example is my fellow members of Austin Bible Church, and the bad example are those evil, bad, unbelieving people you know, down on 6th Street that are... You know. No, no, okay? We're talking about both of these groups are in Austin Bible Church. Both of these groups are in Philippi. Paul's warning them about both groups. He's warning them about believers. Believers that are walking according to Paul's example and believers that have elevated their appetites over the Word of God. And they know the truth. They know, well, the Bible says, yeah, but. Okay? And they have, they have what they know versus what they feel. They have what they know versus what they're hungry for and what they want. And there's not a few. Many, notice. Many walk. And now I tell you, even weeping. And they, they, find that they find themselves in an adversarial relationship. Enemies of the cross of Christ. They shouldn't be. Okay? Anyway. Um, whose end is destruction. Whose God is their appetite. Whose glory is in their shame. Who set their minds on earthly things. Now a lot of times, of course, we, we highlight whose end is destruction and we say, aha, look at that. They can't be saved. They must be unbelievers Paul's talking about because their end is destruction. Well, wait a minute. There's all kinds of ends, okay? And yes, I get you, the end of the unbeliever is the lake of fire. And so you can say his eternal end uh, is destruction if he is an unbeliever. But look at this verse again and ask yourself, well, could this have an application for a carnal believer? 
Could there be, is there another end we might consider besides the lake of fire destruction? Is there an end to um, the limit God places on, on that believer's idolatry? Does God bring idolatry to an end? Does God finally stop His child, His son, from that self-destruction path that they've been on? Yes, He does. And, uh, and if you don't repent, then what have you done? You've been on that self-destructive path, have you not? Whose end is destruction? And, and how many examples do we have of the sin and the death and, and what, what happens there with the brother that does not repent? A believer that dies, the sin and the death. Is it not accurate to say whose end is destruction? Okay. Now they die and go to heaven. Don't get me wrong. No one can lose salvation. They're not, they're not, we're not talking about eternal destruction in the lake of fire, but it's still, I think, a valid description to say whose end is destruction. See, so I wouldn't limit, because on that phrase alone, I wouldn't limit this context to uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a dichotomy between the saved and the lost. Okay? I view this as a dichotomy between those that are following Christ and those that are following their belly. And those following their belly very well might be regenerate brothers and sisters that will go to heaven when they die, but they're following their belly right now. All right. So, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite or their belly. Okay? And anything you can hunger after. You can hunger after food, you can hunger after alcohol, you can hunger after sex, you can hunger after fame, you can hunger after career achievement, the accolades of your peers, the recognition of, of whatever sort there, there is among your peers. There's, a, there's an appetite for that, and I believe there's legitimate appetites in different ways. They just get twisted. They get, they get, um, they get uh, abused. They become an idol whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame. Now once you've turned it into an into a, uh, idol, then it's, it's downhill from there. And, and, and so you start then celebrating what you used to be embarrassed by. When, when what used to be a shame is now a glory, how, how, how far are you? How deep into darkness are you when um, you're not ashamed of it anymore and instead you're boasting in it? Who set their minds on earthly things? Okay. To me, I mean, that just nails it right there because we're told to, to fix our eyes on, on Jesus. We're told to set your mind on the things above. God wouldn't give an imperative of, like set your mind on the things above if it wasn't a snare for us to set our mind on earthly things. Okay. We can set our mind on earthly things. I think most believers do. I think it's, it's, it's a minority of believers that are, have their minds fixed on heavenly things or living in the Word of God. All right, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This whole doctrine here is, is geared to getting us to live under the principles of imminency, to be recognizing the trumpet can sound right now, could sound at any moment. And then under the concept of imminency, we are accountable before Jesus Christ and could be giving that account today. Who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. That's the rapture right there. That's the twinkling of an eye. Casting off mortality and putting on glory. By the exertion of the power that He has uh, even to subject all things to Himself. You know, he's seated at the Father's right hand. It's been given unto him to subject all things. He's not yet done that. Our bodies aren't yet subject. 
the uh, principalities and powers aren't yet subject, not like, like they will be in the fullness of time. Okay, But it's been given unto him to do so. He's inherited a more excellent name than they. And uh, that's something to look forward to in the, in the uh, fullness of time. Alright, so we don't want to turn the appetite into an idol because it never satisfies. And we see it again and again. We've, we've had other Proverbs that address that. And so uh, there we have it. All right. Back to chapter 13 then. And we get our first look at verses 5 and 6. Righteousness and wickedness. Righteousness and wickedness provide the catchword structure to this poetic passage. And these two verses are linked together. The, uh, the poetry of these two verses puts them together as a unit with righteousness and wickedness. We move on to something else in... Uh, 7 and 8, but then we get righteous and wicked again in verse 9, so there's some uh, weaving of this back and forth. But we'll take 5 and 6 by themselves, we'll take 7 and 8 by themselves and talk about money. Uh, But for uh, this morning, let's deal with righteousness and wickedness here in verses 5 and 6. A righteous man hates falsehood, but a wicked man acts disgustingly and shamefully. Okay, It's a stinky word in verse 5. A wicked man stinks up the place. Uh, acts disgustingly and shamefully. Righteousness guards the one whose way is blameless. But wickedness subverts, and really overthrows is a better term than subverts, overthrows the sinner. So two, two paths. We've had it repeatedly over and over throughout Proverbs and we're getting, getting it again here. The contrast between righteousness and wickedness. So on the one hand we have righteousness and righteousness hates if we fear the Lord, we will hate what God hates. We've taught this. We've taught this in chapter 8. We taught it in chapter 12. It keeps coming back up over and over again. Legitimate, sanctified hate. The expression of hate that is like-minded with, with the Lord Himself because the Lord Himself hates. It's not a carnal hate where we're told we're supposed to be angry yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And so we have uh, limitations to our own application. I think that's a good thing. We don't have the, uh, the eternal capacities that God has. Uh, whatever hate we express, we need to make sure that we're doing so on a limited basis. And, uh, and I think that's smart on God's part to give it that sundown deadline, <laughs> to not let the sun go down on your anger. That way we're not, uh, we're not uh, taking it around the clock. We've got to let it rest. You got to let it go. You got to have a season where you're not chewing on it or dwelling on it, so that it's not a 24-hour round-the-clock um, thing, and it becomes a fixation and bitterness uh, just multiplies it. In any event, the fear of the Lord hates evil. That's a, that's the truth. We've seen that. We had this in chapter eight. Spent a lot of time on this, and I was even joking, saying, "Hey, we're going to get some hate lessons today." Proverbs eight thirteen. <coughs> the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. If you don't hate evil, I question whether you fear the Lord, because this definition right here. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. And, and I believe in our generation this is being lost. That love is being redefined and, and, and all this, that evil is being redefined and abominations are now acceptable and we're told to accept them and if we don't we're, we're uh, haters and we don't love. And, and I think they're, they're stealing the language, perverting the language, even as they're perverting the sex act. Okay, let's keep it with what Scripture describes. 
If you don't hate evil, I question whether you fear the Lord. Because God Himself hates this. He hates these abominations. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. And notice where it starts, with the hard attitudes. It starts with a mindset. It starts with, um, do you, do you, in fact, do you see any, any homosexuality or any other kind of sin, a, a sexual sin or any kind of... No. It starts with pride and arrogance and the evil way, the perverted mouth I hate. Okay? Fundamentally, the, the, other, the external perversions that we have with fornication, with, with uh, harlotry, with homosexuality, with all these other things, those themselves also are expressions of pride and um, arrogance in the evil way. Humanity that says they know better than God. And they're going to do what they're going to do. And, uh, and all the rest. So that's uh, chapter 8 and verse 13. We even had some hate... Uh, did I include it from chapter 6? Let's see. I didn't put it on the screen, did I? Uh, 6.16 There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to Him. This is that X, X plus 1 formula. 6 and then 7. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. That's the seventh one and the top one on his list. That's the one he wants to emphasize in the six and even seven formula. One who spreads strife among brothers. So there's all the things that God hates. And again, um, I don't see sexual sins in there. Okay? So there it is. Chapter 12 and verse 22. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal faithfully are his delight. Remember the language of abomination, what he pushes away from versus what he hugs, what he embraces. Verse 5, hating falsehood. Hating falsehood. Chapter 16 and verse 6. Uh, or maybe even 5 and 6. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. Okay? That's why a lot of times we, we talk about, and I've heard different pastors teach that arrogance or pride, that's the, that's the granddaddy of all the sins. That's the one that underlies every other sin. It's that attitude that, that reflects Satan's pride, that reflects the, the sovereignty of self, that says, I am number one in my thinking and I'm going to do what I want to do. And that, that pride, that arrogance comes in and it's just, it's an abomination. We, we, we are not our own. We didn't create ourselves, we didn't redeem ourselves, we've been bought with a price. We do not own ourselves, we're His. And every time we decide to plunge into this arrogance and this, uh, this uh, pride, then we're just entering into that thing that God says is an abomination to Him. So uh, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly He will not be unpunished. And so think about it, if you, if you think in these terms, the next time you, you decide to 1 John 1, 9, the next time you decide to confess, whatever sin it is, before you confess that sin or after you confess that sin or in connected to that sin, say, Father, uh, I did such and such, and I did so in arrogance. I did so in pride. I put my own sovereignty over yours. I put my belly over your will. I substituted my 
my will for what I wanted to do and I elevated that over what your word told me I should not do. And Father, that's pride. That's arrogance. And so Father, uh, in so doing, you know, um, it, it motivated this and there I went. And, and I can't think of a, of, a, of a sin yet where you cannot go through that, that thought process. Where you cannot uh, admit or confess the reality that in the commission of that sin came behind that was the, the, the attitude of pride that elevated self above the will of God. Okay? All right. Verse uh, 6 says, By loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for. Think about that, because that's, that's grace and truth. That's Jesus Christ. You know, we had an Old Testament gospel right here. By loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. Do you fear the Lord? You're going to hate evil, you're going to keep away from it. You're going to shun it. You're going to walk far from it. You're going to realize that grace and truth saved you and grace and truth didn't save you so that you could walk in that darkness. You're now a child of light. Walk as a child of light. Okay, Not, not to earn it or deserve it, but as a consequence, as a reflection, as an appreciation. That's uh, Proverbs 16, 6. Um, all right. Psalm 45, 7. Weren't we just here in the Hebrews class on Sunday? Psalm 45? I believe so. You remember? Or were you sleeping? All right. Psalm 45, the enthronement, the enthronement psalm, right? And here's... Uh, the criteria by which God the Father is pronouncing his, uh, his enthronement of Jesus Christ on the throne of David, the Messiah. And um, the uh, testimony to this in verse 6, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. I mean, this is his coronation. This is like his... Uh, his, uh, you know, um, what do you call that? The, uh, the inauguration, like when you inaugurate a president, or and he's gonna. This is the this is the testimony, far higher than an American president, of course. This is the king. This is Jesus Christ coming to reign in his second advent. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, so he's being celebrated for his love and for his hate. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. Remember, prophets, priests, and kings are all anointed. Here he's being anointed as a king with the oil of joy above your fellows or your companions. And uh, we took the time on Sunday to identify us, the church, the body of Christ, as the companions, uh, the fellows that uh, Psalm 45 wouldn't have any idea about. All right? So there it is. The fear of the Lord hates evil. You have to hate evil or or you don't truly love. You have to hate evil or you don't fear the Lord. Okay? And, and to me, this is fundamental. And this, this may end up being the great, you know, the, if the battle lines have already been drawn up, then uh, if we keep ourselves aligned to the love of God, then we may pay a price for that. We may find that uh, certain, uh, uh, and, and, you know, everything we preach is sitting on the website. Those that want to hear uh, or accumulate evidence against us can find no shortage of messages where we have preached the truth. 
And uh, if that becomes a hate crime, if that becomes hate speech, if we become civilly liable and then criminally liable for saying such things, then uh, well, are we willing to pay that price? What do we do? Psalm 97 and verse 10. Psalm 97 and verse 10. And then I'd like to maybe get to the point I don't know, it just gets tiring when people say, well, you hate whatever. You hate these people. You hate those people. You hate these people. Okay? And in believers have done different things over the years to try to answer that, right? And, and they try to say, well, no, no, no. Uh, you know, we hate the sin, but we love the sinner. Okay? We tried little expressions. We tried little ditties. We tried little things and saying, well, no, no, I don't, I don't hate you. Um, I love you. I want you to repent. I want you to, to, uh, to get saved. You know, we tried little things like that, but, but a lot of times they come across um, wishy-washy or they come across weak or they come across not genuine. I, I'm curious to think, and, and I don't have the answers this morning, but I'm curious what if we embrace the hate? And say, I do because God does. Yes, I do hate. But I also love. And here's why. And so you lay it out there. Not in a vitriol. Not in a, not any kind of a vicious kind of a, uh, you know, but, but you can be right up front to say, yes, I hate. Okay? And this is, uh, this is all in the news. I mean, this is this weekend, right? This is all in the news about hate groups and this and that. But if, if God hates... Why are we apologizing? Or why are we acting like we don't? Or if we're supposed to, and we do, then why are we denying that? See, to me, I think it's, 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 um, it's, it's hypocritical and it's wrong. And I think we're not doing ourselves any favors. I think we should just come and in love define our hate. Does that make sense? Say yes, I do hate. I hate this sin, I hate this sin, I hate this sin, I hate this sin, and I hate the the philosophy that redefines those sins to say they're okay. I hate that. I hate that because I've got family members that are trapped in, in, a, in a death style, they're calling a lifestyle. And I hate that. So uh, yeah, sign me up. Okay, Put me on the hate list. And maybe that approach might edify. I don't know. That may get nowhere either, but um, just seems to me like what we've been doing so far isn't working. Okay, So Anyway, pray for that. Let's say, Lord, help my pastor. His mind rambles. Psalm 97 and verse 10. Hate evil, you who love the Lord. I mean, can you get more blunt than that? That's an order. Hate evil, you who love the Lord. So put that on your refrigerator and stare at it every morning. (laughs) Okay? Hate evil, you who love the Lord, who preserves the souls of His godly ones, who delivers them from the, land, from the hand of the wicked. Okay? So this is, a, this is a command. And I think it's, um, there's a larger context on this, but, um, but there it is. Light is sown like seed for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. Be glad in the Lord, you righteous ones. Give thanks to His holy name. You know, how, how, do I, how do I obey verses 11 and 12 if I'm not obeying verse 10? I don't think I can. And there it is. Jude 23 speaks of this. Snatching those from the fire, hating even the garment polluted 
by the flesh. Jude 23. And there's probably more. I just gave a sample. We had more when we, stu- we studied hate in chapter 6. We studied hate in chapter 8. Alright, Jude 23. So it says, um, keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Does that bother you? Somebody asked me that the other day. It might even be one of our questions tonight. Um, So verse 20, you beloved, building yourselves up in in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. That was the question. How do I not stay in the love of God? Romans 8 says I can't be separated from the love of God. And yes, that's true. Okay? What shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus? Nothing. Neither life nor death nor created thing nor things present or things to come. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Now, think of that positionally, think of that experientially. Think about what, uh, on an experiential basis here, what's uh, our imperative to keep ourselves in the love of God. It would be like uh, Galatians 5, stay in fellowship. Walk in the light. Keep yourself, uh, because isn't the fruit of the Spirit love? So if you're, if, you're, if you're in fellowship, then you're bearing love, and I think you're applying this verse. Keep yourself in the love of God. So building yourself up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God. In other words, stay in fellowship, continue to bear the fruit of the Spirit. Don't go carnal. Waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Why do I teach the rapture so much? Why do I always say here, there, in the air? Why do I always... Uh, you know, why am I stressing imminency every chance I get? Okay? Almost to the point where I think some of my flock is getting offended or getting, you know, you know the, you're fed up with it. Okay? Well, sorry, I'm going to keep doing it. Okay? And, uh, and, and it's just, it's, I can't help it. I have to. Someone says, hey, uh, you know, see you tomorrow because we have an appointment, right? Well, unless the trumpet sounds first. Okay? I've got another appointment on Saturday. See you Saturday. Nope. Unless the trumpet comes first. I might see you sooner than that. We might be in the air before Saturday. Because I'm not coming back on Saturday for our lunch if, if, uh, if the trumpet sounds between now and then. So uh, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And, and I think there are believers with doctrine. They know the rapture is coming. They understand it. But they're not anxious about it. They're not eager for it. They're not waiting for it. And, and because, I think, worldly mindedness kind of pushes that out of the mind. I think if, if you're focused on the things below, then eh, okay. I mean, it's a nice doctrine and all, but I'm in no hurry to get there because I'm kind of having fun here and now. This is kind of, you know. No, we should be waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then it goes on to say, and have mercy on some who are doubting. Who are those? Who are the doubters? Are we talking about unbelievers there or are we talking about believers? Yeah, our brothers in Christ have started to drift and have started to wonder. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And so, see, some people, they just read these verses and all they can think about are unbelievers, they're going to go to hell. How do I save them? I can't save anybody. Jesus saves everybody. Um, what are we talking about snatching them out of the fire and, and uh, is, this, is this the hell fire of the lake of fire or is this a fire of judgment, a fire of, of discipline, a fire of, of, their, of uh, a temporal life application? 
in the uh, experiential aspect. On some have mercy with fear. Remember what the fear of the Lord is. Hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now this is a, how do you show them mercy? You can't be defiled. So how do you show them mercy? I think the, uh, the mercy with fear is when you, you tell them uh, so long. Say, I can't abide by this. I can't fellowship with this. What concord hath light and darkness? What fellowship has Christ with Belial? I hate the garment polluted by the flesh. And when dirty rubs against clean, what happens? Every time. Clean gets dirty. Yeah. Can't take a muddy garment and rub it up against a clean garment and say, oh, look at that. The clean rubbed off on my dirty garment. No, it never works that way. It's always the dirty rubs off on the clean garment. And so have mercy on others. Have mercy with fear. Hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. And to me it's interesting because um, the saving and the snatching is not mentioned in that last expression. There's some that you can't save. There's some that you can't snatch. There's some that you can't take out of the fire because they're, they're loving it. They're living in it. They're not coming out of the fire. And so you have mercy on those with fear. And I think it is a mercy to walk away. It is a mercy to separate. Not always easy, but it's described that way here. All right. That him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. I love that. He is able to. Does that mean he always does? Or do we stumble from time to time? Okay, of course we do. But even when we stumble, remember, he's able to keep us from stumbling. So when we stumble, whose fault is it? His or ours? Because <laughs> he's able. We just didn't make use of his ability, did we? And so not accessing his ability, trusting in our ability, we stumbled. He's able to keep you from stumbling. He's able to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. That's where I want to be. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now, and forever. Amen. A powerful text. Eternity past, temporal present, eternity future right there. All right, so if we, hear, if we fear the Lord, we will hate what God hates. If we hate it, we push it away. In some cases we separate and say that's it. Um, we cannot abide darkness. Not only that, we get rewarded for doing so. We get protected by doing so. The path of the righteous or the path of the blameless, it is guarded. It is watched over by experiential righteousness. This is, it's, it's self-protecting to walk in God's plan. When you're walking in righteousness, when you're walking in that experiential righteousness, that guards you. That guards you. That protects you. Again, back to Proverbs 13 now and What's verse 6 talking about? Righteousness guards the one whose way is blameless. So we're on the way of blamelessness. We have a positional truth and we have experiential truth, right? We have the positional truth reality that we are saved. We are on the way of the blameless. That's our new walk. That's our new positional truth. And what's going to guard us on that path? experiential righteousness. 
The path of the blameless is guarded by experiential righteousness. So as long as we keep the, the breastplate of righteousness on, as long as we stay in our armor, as long as we're walking in experiential righteousness, that righteousness has a protective function. That righteousness will watch over you, it will guard you, it will protect you. And uh, this is something we've seen again and again and again. In chapter 2, in chapter 4, in chapter 11, in chapter 12, it keeps coming up. That God in His Word, in this walk of righteousness, it guards us, it protects us. Okay? That's why parents want to uh, can rest easily if their children are walking in the light. <laughs> because doctrine will protect them. Righteousness will protect them. So... Do I race through this in two minutes? What do I do? Or do I save this for next week? Well, let's look at a couple of them and then we'll see. Uh, Proverbs chapter 2. Remember that we teach this to children. You know, how, how does righteousness ever hurt you? <laughs> you know? How does righteousness ever, uh, the, 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 the smart choices, the, the, the blessings of walking in the light, you, it never hurts you. You don't have any regrets. You don't enter into your marriage and then sit there with all of these regrets about all the righteousness you committed in your single days. Okay? Not once. You never, righteousness will protect you. Every time. All right, Proverbs 2 and verse 11. Discretion will guard, as this is walking in the light. Um, wisdom, uh, verse 10 says, wisdom will enter your heart Knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will guard you. Understanding will watch over you. It has an active role. That's what the Word of God does. That's what this righteousness does. And it's experiential. It's not just being saved. It's walking in that righteousness to deliver you from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things, from those who leave the paths of unrighteousness, uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness. What delivers you from this sin? Truth. But you've got to be living it. You got, a Bible sitting on a shelf doesn't save anybody. But, but when you're in the Word of God, when you're living it, when you're digesting it, when it saturates your soul, um, that's what does it. It's that path of the blameless guarded by experiential righteousness. Anyway, well, we'll do more on that because, um, like I say, we're out of time and uh, there's too many to look at there. And then we've got to see, we've got to talk about the stink, how the wicked stink in their shame and how they're overthrown they think they're making all this great progress and they're just thrown down. They are overthrown. So we'll get to the, uh, the overthrow under subpoint C. Father, I do thank you for your truth. I thank you for this morning. And Father, uh, I pray that you continue to open the eyes of our understanding. We want to learn more, Father, and not just academically. We, wanna, we want this knowledge to come with the love that we can live it, we can apply it, we can uh, uh, be just dwelling in the truth of your word all day, every day. And in so doing, Father, we're protected. In so doing, we're watched over. In so doing, Father, this, this, uh, this walk is what's glorifying Your Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we thank You for that. I do pray, Father, for um, family members and loved ones and former church members and folks that, um, Father, they, they used to walk a walk like this and, and now they're not. Father, now they're uh, walking a different kind of walk. The, they're God is their belly and, and they're out there, Father. They're not in the Word. They're not uh, 
not even being saturated. They're not even being occasionally sprinkled, Father. They're nowhere near your word. And and uh, Father, I, I pray that that you would teach us how to be merciful with fear and and uh, and be at work in them, Father, so that. I pray you bring them to a point of such misery that they will repent and will come back. Because Father, I know that they, uh, if they don't, the end thereof is death. So be faithful, Father. And, uh, and then be comforting. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Alrighty. Thanks for coming. We'll see you uh, here, there, or in the air. We might come back this evening.